Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the show today we have Dr Simone Ahuja. She's the founder of Blood Orange, an innovation and strategy consulting group. She's also a best-selling author and a public speaker. But before we get a chance to speak with Simone, it's the Leadership Hacker News. The global pandemic has turned many of us into home teachers, filmmakers, entertainers and inventors, making use of what we have and being innovative with our time and our resources. The times we now live in has never been more relevant for innovation and creativity. One innovative CEO of an Italian 3D printing startup learned at a hospital nearby the town he lived in was suffering dreadfully through the coronavirus outbreak was running short of a small but critical component that connect respirators to oxygen masks. Other suppliers just could not keep up with demand and doctors were in search of a solution. Christian Fracassi, who told Reuters recently, when he heard about the shortage, they got in touch with the hospital immediately. They then printed some prototypes, the hospital tested them the following day, and they worked. They then printed 100 vowels and delivered them personally to the hospital. And this has now created a new thriving business for the startup. Similar efforts have popped up around the world where firms are now printing 3D face shields and other items to help with the crisis. 3D printing is relatively new technology that most manufacturers are now aware of and some indeed are using quite readily. You can build anything from tiny components right the way up to houses. What this does demonstrate though is that in a crisis this disruptive situation we find us in can create disruptive thinking and innovation in us all. There's a global hackathon taking place right now online. A hackathon is where a group of people get together including developers, subject matter experts, where they come up with quick ideas, build and prototype products super quick. This new global initiative or hackathon is called Covent19, ironically, and it's hosting an online moonshot competition to develop and deploy a mechanical ventilator. The Covent19 challenge is fostering the innovation of rapidly deployable, minimum viable mechanical ventilators for patients with COVID-19 and other ventilator dependent requirements and injuries. Their goal and mission is to close the gap between the actual resources available and those that are in need around the world and distribute that product as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And only four weeks in from start of the competition and the moonshot thinking, there are already three prototypes that are being tested live with patients around the world. This just goes to show that if we throw away those assumptions, new thinking can flourish and new innovation and new ideas can be born and developed really quickly. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any insights, news or stories that you'd like our listeners to hear, get in touch with us through our social media or our website. Dr. Simone Huja is a best-selling author, 
speaker and founder of the innovation and strategy firm Blood Orange and is our special guest on the Leadership Hacker podcast today. Simone, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. So innovation and strategy is not where it all started for you, is it? You started off in dentistry, if I'm right. (laughs) That's exactly right. So how did you end up going into dentistry, then pivoting to doing what you're doing now? Yeah, people often ask me, what's the connection between dentistry and innovation strategy? And I will tell you, if the, the, one of the greatest skills I learned through dental training is I didn't practice dentistry for very long, but long enough to understand how to manage anxiety. You know, there's ob- obviously there's a lot of that when folks come to the dentist and, you know, ironically and interestingly, I, there's a ton of anxiety around innovation in some ways, because often when you're going into an organization, you're talking about innovation, it sounds like change. And frankly, it is change. And that change manifests as anxiety. So I think that you know, some of that, some of that training actually crossed over, but it was a, it was actually a bout of typhoid that left me pretty, pretty sick and hospitalized for 10 days, some hallucinations and high, high spiky fevers and made me feel like, think that, you know what, life is pretty short. This isn't my path forward. And I started to uh, shift into a few other areas. I had been practicing uh, improvisational comedy. I had been doing some filmmaking in addition to practicing dentistry very early on. Uh, And I, and I, dove into those a little bit deeper. And ultimately, as I was making documentary films about emerging markets like India, I became kind of a market expert. And we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the area where I live. And this was about um, early to mid-2000s. Folks were saying, well, what can you tell us about these emerging economies? What's happening there? Uh, and as I became more of that market expert, I ended up making uh, a documentary for PBS that was funded by Best Buy, the consumer electronics company, as they were thinking about not how to enter the market, but how do you look at a mindset where if you don't have a ton of resources, like in an emerging market, but you still have to solve big problems, there's got to be a way to do that. And what can we learn from that? So that really is where I first started diving into innovation. And that's where I realized that I love the anthropological piece of this, where I was diving in and in the market and talking to people, understanding what makes them tick and kind of putting different ideas together. And then that documentary led to uh, a concept that I learned about called Jugad or uh, Jugad Innovation. I later called it with my co-authors. And Jugad is this way of doing more with less. So I don't have a ton of resources, but I've got to still solve these problems. How do I do it? And so, you know, we kind of, we started writing about that in the Harvard Business Review and a literary agent then pinged us and said, would you like to write a book about this concept? And that's it. That's how it all got started. So it was, you know, back when, back when I did this, I think it was probably thought of as a little bit more, um, atypical. I think now we just call it a multi-webbed, multidisciplinary background to have all these experiences in your hat. Exactly right. Uh, but that, that's how it all started. It's a really uh, neat and interesting backstory. And, and often what I find through working with lots of entrepreneurs is that there's often a moment in their lives where something has happened. In, in your case, it was you know not being very well that created that in a self-talk that says, mm-hmm. I've got to do something, I've got to do something different. And that's really neat. And you know, what? I'd never made the parallel between going to the dentist and innovation, but I, I can see it. I can experience it. You know, I, I work with a lot of organizations and you go through that same nervous intrepidation that comes through, but I don't know if it's going to work and will I be safe and all of those same emotions really that happen in dentistry. So what a, what a neat parallel to have. Yeah, it is. It's, and it's sometimes anticipation is, is the worst of it, right? So if you can help people navigate that, 
and have some compassion and understanding the why. I think, you know, and even I would say even uh, younger in my innovation career, while I think I understood the anxiety, I probably wasn't as compassionate about it as I should have been. It's something that I, I've learned as I've kind of matured in my innovation strategy practice is really understanding the why, why the fear, why the anxiety, why the pushback, and, and helping people work their way through that. Jugard innovation has often been referred to as frugal innovation, and, and Jugard is the, the Indian word for frugality. Is that right? Yeah, so Jugard is a, a Hindi term. It actually originated in Punjab, a northern state in India. And, and what it originally was was like a jury-rigged farm vehicle. So take any parts that you have available to you, make a vehicle that'll serve multiple purposes. It could be tilling soil. It could be hauling things. It could be transporting people. And, you know, these weren't always the safest vehicles, but they were vehicles that would get the job done. And everybody, unfortunately, doesn't have the choice to have the, you know, the safest, most luxurious vehicle. But the, but the concept was one of taking things that were readily available to you. So not thinking about what I don't have, but rather, what do I have that can help me get these jobs done, right? All of us are familiar with that phrase, jobs to be done. So it was sort of that, that vehicle is what the original jugad was and it became more of a colloquial term so if you say i'm going to do some jugad it means i'm going to fix this in some kind of way that's um that's uh, you know maybe it's a, a a quick way to do it maybe it's an improvised way to do it and a lot of times those solutions are uh not the end all be all solution but they'll something that can get you to the next step and there's actually you know some controversy in india and people who really understand the meaning of this word about, well, is it really valuable or not? And, and what I will say is when I worked in India for eight months doing my on-the-ground research for the book Jugad Innovation, I learned about that practice of leveraging ingenuity and leveraging improvisation and thinking about what you have rather than what you don't have. And, you know, because for me, having uh, uh, been trained as um, a scientist in the empirical approach, you know, it was just which is actually kind of a good discovery process. It's still much more linear. And so I was managing two teams, one team in India, one team in the United States. And it was very interesting. All of them were, were so bright and putting forward great ideas, but they were different. So we learned a lot from each other. So where in, in the US, the teams were putting forward great ideas in a more linear fashion that were really valuable. The teams in India were, so for, I'll give you an example. We were, we were filming some case studies about what does Jugad or Jugad innovation look like? And we went out to um, look at some micro, small energy, um, like windmills that salt farmers had created in this desert called the Ranavkach. And we were literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there was, there was, was and is still no GPS in that area. And our guide was a, a man with a very long white beard. And if he went down, we were going to go down with him. There was nothing, uh, nothing really in sight. And, you know, we were trying to capture some of this story. And, you know, the, the ground became kind of craggy. And it was interesting because my, um, my team, we didn't have a steady cam, right? So we were filming this. And I, I, we, we needed a better picture as we were driving along and we couldn't go and rent something. But my team immediately said, well, we'll do some jugar. And that's when I remember thinking like, what is jugar? What is that? Whatever it is, let's do that. Cause, cause we're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of water. We're going to run out of fuel and that's it shows over. And so what they did is they just sort of fashioned something 
out of whatever we had in the van. So we had pillows, we had some pipes, we had some twine, and they put something together that allowed us to capture a more steady image that was good enough for us to continue forward. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that, hey, this is a different approach. And I think, you know, this is where I started really thinking about striving for perfection, which is really a kind of a myth in many ways. It's not to say you don't want to have excellence or safety uh, and, and thinking about how do we improvise solutions. And that's the thing that I wanted to really bring back and share here in the United States and, and Europe and the UK. What does it look like to have more of that improvised mindset? And to be sure, you know, we have a ton of that if you, in our entrepreneurial communities. And, you know, if we look back further, our farmers, if we look at the way that small farms used to operate, those are the ultimate Jugad innovators. It's a super story. And if you think about the principles of Jugad and being frugal, probably the environment that we're in now has never needed Jugad more. So the global pandemic, organizations having to be really thoughtful about how they use their money, their resources. How do you think that the environment that we've been forced into now is going to change our lens as to how we might approach innovation in the future? So I love this question. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that um, Jugad Innovation has never been more relevant than it is right now in the you know, in the in the face of a, a pandemic, in the face of a crisis like the one that we're in. And we're seeing this in real time. So the priorities are getting very crystal clear. The simplicity, there's a lot of complexity in terms of things like, well, who's doing what? But in organizations that I'm working with right now, everybody's peeling back all the fat. Let's get really focused on what our problem is. Let's identify that and let's address that in the best way possible. So the simplicity is coming forward. The, the idea of leveraging ingenuity is happening in a way like I've never seen it in a lot of organizations. And you see that too, right? We see that in a lot of um, digital platforms that are getting quickly created. The, the, the way that you know, there's, there are teams working from home where they didn't before. Organizations are starting to have to... Um, flex that way, right? which is, you know, building, you know, ha creating a, an environment where we need to trust more, which is another something we could talk about a little more as well. But ventilators uh, are being created in a way that they weren't before by organizations who never created them before, or maybe two people have to use two ventilators. Maybe these are things we have to start thinking about. So it's really creating uh, a time when we have to leverage a more flexible mindset and this idea, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was, I'm working with one organization where, you know, the senior leader came to me and said, look, we want you to help us think about how do we fend off external disruption? And when the COVID crisis struck, there was sort of this question mark of, should we continue with this? And, you know, the answer is you have to continue with this. Because this is the disruption. It's just taken a different shape than we thought it would. It's not a startup or another large organization. It's taken, it's taken the shape of a pandemic. This is disrupting your business. This is disrupting the way you work. And now you have to respond to it using these different principles. You know, you have to do more with less. You have to leverage ingenuity. Uh, you have to make sure you're addressing your customer needs, whoever they are, whether they're internal or external. So now has, I think, is the best time to apply the principles of, of Jugad Innovation to fend off this external disruption. 
Got it. And also, I think mindset is something you talked about quite a lot and is, is something that, that you write about quite a lot in terms of the mindset around innovation. And having a pandemic forces people into doing things. It creates that disruption, that discomfort. How much of a mindset, though, as to what you then do next okay. plays out here? This is a really important question. So what I'm observing in real time with clients right now is that this pandemic is demonstrating what is possible. You know, there's an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote that says, a mind once shifted or changed shape can never return to its original shape. And I I believe that's true. So now what we have to do is make sure that there isn't too, you know, there, there might be another shape shift that occurs in mindset. The question I have for the leaders who've seen these twists and, you know, these, this shape change is now that you've seen people um, operating in a different way. Now that you see people, for example, a person in one area going to another area, because that's where they're needed, not because they're worried about their title, because that's how they have to address the problem, the real problem at hand. The question for the leader is, now what are you going to do? How are you going to make sure the shape is maintained or even accelerated? What are you going to model? What are you going to reward? What are you going to support? What systems will you put in place so we don't go back to the way it was. It doesn't, nobody wants to stay in a state of heightened fear forever. It's exhausting. People are getting tired. At the same time, there's a ton of good that's coming out of this. So, so leaders have to think about how do, what are the systems we put in place to support this? And I think what's really interesting about what we're seeing in real time in almost every organization is, um, you know, it's really this, 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 it's extracting more value uh, out of organizations, out of people and stretching their limits. So it's showing them, even if they were pushing back against changing, it's showing them what they can do. It's a way that had to happen. So I think that's the piece that's really interesting is now you're seeing it. It's not that some leader is saying, well, this is part of an innovation you know, initiative. You have to do it. It's actually happening. Having a leadership mindset for innovation also isn't just about you dictating the pace and creating the environment, setting the strategy. This is about how you unlock the capacity for innovation within the teams you work with, right? Yeah, that's right. Internally, most leaders who have more of an innovative mindset will start to think about how they develop entrepreneurship in their teams and how do we create that entrepreneurial spirit internally. And in your latest book, Disrupt It Yourself, you take that to another level, don't you? You call them the DIYers, the Disrupt It Yourselfers. Tell us a little bit about that. So entrepreneurship is gaining a lot of popularity right now. You know, as we see more and more startups that are uh, potentially able to disrupt big established players, as we see that you know, only 14% of new graduates want to work in large organizations, large organizations are saying, well, hey, how can, we, how can we embody some of that spirit and energy so that we can actually sustain ourselves? We know that the big companies are falling off the map, whether it's the S&P 500 or other, you know, uh, other uh, indices, they're just not there as long as they used to be. So intrapreneurs of yore were more higher ranking. They were really thinking more about the kind of existing products or enhancements or kind of uh, related services. They were the lone wolf. They were kind of looking more about at the past, whereas the DIYers are, it's more democratic. It's more, it's everyone. You know, one of the the first things that we do when we go into organizations is do kind of a a check-in on 
who's actually coming with, up with the ideas? And if it's only people who are senior leaders in corporate, we know that probably they don't have a really um, complete spectrum of ideas, right? So it's about being democratized and, and being more inclusive. It's about altogether new ideas. And to be very clear, it's not about chasing shiny objects. I think it's really important for organizations to think about how do we advance our existing business priorities using innovation as a tool, a lever, a methodology, right? So it's not, you know, that we're just, we're just going off on tangents here. We're still meeting needs. We're just doing it in a completely different way. And I think DIYers are more collaborative. You know, if the, if the entrepreneur of, of, you know, 30 years ago was kind of the lone wolf in, in their garage, the entrepreneur a DIYer, rather, is kind of someone who is more collaborative. They're able to enlist people. They understand that you know, they're not going to have all the problem-solving prowess at their fingerprints. And not just the problem-solving, but also you know, how do you socialize and evangelize ideas? How do you keep ideas going? And then, moreover, how do you keep it moving through the energy, moving through the organization so it doesn't die out early? So those are some of the fundamental differences between an entrepreneur when the the term was first coined 30 plus years ago and a, a DIYer. Given many folk listening to this will be leading organizations and teams, they'll be used to processes and systems that have helped create the outcomes for innovation and thinking, things like Six Sigma and Agile Transformation. How do you move away from the control as a leader in holding on to these processes and give control to the teams to really kind of allow that flair and innovative flair and entrepreneurship and DIYers to come to the fore. So if we think about what Six Sigma is, it's really all about optimization. And that's kind of a code word for sameness, right? But that's tough, especially in today's environment, right? Things are changing really fast. And we've especially seen that now in the midst of the COVID crisis. And you can't really schedule creativity and ideas and say, well, I'm going to have you know, eight creative ideas on Wednesday at 3 p.m. So that, that's a huge challenge of the linearity and the sameness that Six Sigma drives. So, you know, my sense is that that's, that's a discipline of the past, not of the future. Whereas, of course, if we look at, you know, Agile, not as a, a software development approach, but as a management or a business approach, it makes a ton of sense because it really is one that kind of inspires organizational fluidity, right? So we're thinking about what are our requirements and how do our solutions evolve over time, you know, through the collaboration that we do? How do we think about not only what we're doing, but what we're not doing? And I think that's the power of Agile, right? You're, you're updating along the way and removing things that are no longer needed. Now, the thing that's interesting about this from a leadership perspective is this requires rapid change and this requires trust. And, and I think that trust is so fundamental to innovation. And we see this over and over again. You know, we've seen this out of Google when they looked at their teams that were the most effective. They weren't the teams with the best pedigrees or the most experienced. They were the teams that built the most psychological safety. And I think we have to hammer that message home. I recently, uh, with my team, did some deep dive research with a team of leadership about this idea of safety, uh, you know, what's working innovation, what's not, and, and psychological safety came up as a top barrier. However, out of, you know, a handful of leaders, 80 plus percent said, that's not true for my team. But we had the data in front of us. 
So it's a disconnect because nobody wants to feel like they're not fostering that safety and that trust in their teams, but it's happening all the time. And when you don't have the trust, you're not setting up an environment for for new ideas. You're setting up an environment that's going to only do something safe, something that we've we've done before. You know, Adam Grant had a great tweet that he put out recently. You know, if you're having issues trusting your your folks who are working from home right now, right, as everyone's shifting to, to most people working from home, you either shouldn't have hired them in the first place. You're not doing a good job motivating them. You are protecting your own, you know, poor work at home habits or all of the above. And I think that's actually quite true. So, you know, if we think about what, what is what is the old management paradigm, the old management paradigm is how do we keep people on the rails? And that's why Six Sigma made a lot of sense. That's ex- that's exactly what Six Sigma is. How do we keep people on the rails? How do we keep things the same? How do we optimize? Today, if we think about, about what the new management paradigm is in the 21st century, it's about creating space. It's about creating a permissionless environment and disrupt it yourself. I talk about the value of what does it mean to be a permissionless environment? How do we build trust? How do we provide air cover and remove barriers uh, for entrepreneurs rather than trying to keep them uh, really confined? So I think that that concept of of trust, uh, what I've realized is sometimes it's about the systems in place, right? So if people come up with big new ideas or try something different, there might be, forget about not even, you know, rewards or incentives, they're actually penalties. That's actually really true. But what I've come to realize as I work with innovation teams, mostly mostly in Fortune 500s, is that it also can be a leadership issue. It also comes down to your own ability to lead and trust, which is connected to the broader culture, but it's also connected to self. So I would encourage any managers and leaders who are listening to podcasts to really look internally about about why they may not be as trusting as they want to be. And to create a permissionless society, you absolutely need trust. So for the folks that are listening to this, where would they start? What would be the kind of one place you'd encourage them to, to think about or to take some action first to start the journey towards that permissionless society? When we think about being permissionless, the there are a couple of things that leaders can do. So the first thing we talked about, the most important thing is, how do I create air cover for my entrepreneurs? And I do that if I trust them. If I trust that they're working towards the greater good, let's say we come to an agreement or they've identified a pain point for whoever our end user is, and they're trying to solve it in a new way, how do I create space and how do I remove barriers that are coming up for them. And, you know, this is interesting. This is connected to having a more sort of decentralized approach to innovation. So this is, this means that even if somebody doesn't have innovation in their title, you're still supporting them and you're still, you're still allowing them and, and giving them that permission, right. To be permissionless. And this is something that I see leaders butting up against very often where they, you know, the, the word permissionless. So this is actually a, a, a title of, of one of the principles of my book, make it permissionless. And I got to tell you, if I've ever seen hackles go up, 
this idea of permissionless is a big one. I bet. And it, I bet. <laughs> you can imagine, right? You've seen this in so many of the organizations you've worked with, right, Steve? Right. I have. Yeah, for sure. It's a control thing, isn't it, really? It is. It's about I'm now having to give away control. That's something I had control of as a leader. I'm now giving it to you and I'm saying, yeah, you have the ability and the permission to go ahead yeah. and you don't have to ask. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think there there's so much inside of it. It's, it's about ourselves. It's about trust. It's about our MOVs. It's about the various metrics that we have. It's about not knowing necessarily what is that what does that path look like. So if we think about, you know, how do we quickly uh, and easily create a more permissionless environment? There, there are some simple things that you can do. It, like the first thing is you have to start signaling this. So when people act in a permissionless way, you have to hold it up and say, look, this isn't exactly how we always, all, always did it. Here's someone who tried a different approach. Here's what we learned from it. And I think it's important that it's not always a quote success. Share the learning so that people understand a permissionless environment is also one where learning is valued as a currency. And it's not just the so-called wins uh, are valued, right? And, and by the way, you know, there's so much talk about failure. That's the other problem. There's so much risk aversion and there's, there's a concern about failure. And from childhood, there's a lot of shame around this word of failure. And in our practice, we just don't use that word anymore. I know a lot of people like to, and I think it's, it's a, it works for some organizations. But what we've found is that, you know, if, you know, if we prove a hypothesis out, it's learning. And then if we disprove a hypothesis, that's also learning. And it helps people reframe their, their path forward. And if you're experimenting and trying new things, invariably, a lot of things aren't going to uh, work out. So, um, you know, what, what leaders can do is talk about it, uh, signal that it's, that it's okay, reward people who are acting in this way. You know, for some organizations, we've had to establish baby steps. And that looks exactly like this. So instead of being broadly permissionless, it's you go to your manager, you agree on the problem that you're going to solve. You agree that there's a need for that. You kind of make your case about here's this pain point. I want to solve this problem. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to check in with you every so often. And maybe you establish a cadence of when you check in. And hopefully that check-in is more about updating idea sharing and barrier removal than it is about, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're off the rails and you're not going to hit your mark. And you know this is going to affect our P&L, right? So there are two different ways you can go. So the idea is you know, create that kind of a, a system between individual contributors and managers, because sometimes you have to get that granular and there has to be a little bit more permission in the permissionless to be realistic in some organizations. And you're so right about the whole principle of failure yeah. versus learning. And, and, and the reason that is so important for people to get their heads around is that failure goes to a different part of our brain than learning does. Failure goes to a part of our brain in the limbic system, and it can create a response in us that's really unhelpful, whereas learning is a positive outcome, and it triggers the right thinking, but more importantly, keeps the front of our brain working, which is where we make executive decisions. So it's absolutely important that people reframe in that way, isn't it? That's so true, Steve. And I think this kind of winds back to what we were talking about early, earlier about the psychology and the, and the neuroscience. You know, and so in a way, it's sort of like, how, how are we compassionate around this? You know, why are people risk averse? Why is there perfectionism? Why are we not interested in failing? And if failing is way too hard, let's just call it learning. Because it literally right. creates a different chemical response in our bodies. So true. Right? So if people are thinking now, I've got a permissionless society, I've got people running in different directions, all doing crazy things, they'd have a wrong view, wouldn't they? Right. Because that's not really what that means. That's right. It's not about, you know, I'm going to intentionally run into walls over and over again. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, I can, I have carte blanche to do whatever I, th I think without really being thoughtful 
about the the best way forward or enlisting others or making sure I stay really connected to my customer or or mitigating risk by by making the steps that I take or the experiments that I do really small. It's not at all about that. It's very much about, you know, um, testing your way forward and and learning in small steps. And frankly, it's it's actually quite the opposite, right? And you know this from your practice. If we if we experiment our way forward, we take these tiny little bets over and over again, we'll get to a better outcome than if we make a couple of massive bets and one of them goes wrong or doesn't work out in the way that we It de-risks the situation, to. doesn't it? It sure does. It de-risks the situation. That's exactly right. So if we have created more DIYers and they're running around now with this mindset that says, I have permission to be innovative and we're creating more disruption in our organizations. In your experience, is this ultimately going to lead to more disruptive behavior and a lack of discipline? No, it, it isn't. I think what it leads to is it leads to more engagement. Now, while I don't think that you know we should hold up innovation um, only as an engagement tool, I think when when that you know if that happens, that might be a little dangerous. We know that innovation is really imperative to sustain in today's environment. But what I've seen very clearly is that operating in this way and giving people in Dan Pink's you know, phrases and the research he's done that mastery and giving them the autonomy and often a sense of purpose that comes with you know, solving problems about something that you care about, you identify the sunlight need is you create a tremendous uh, amount of engagement. You provide more creative outlets, you get better ideas. And it's not that everybody goes rogue it's again comes back to this idea of, of trust. And so it's about putting those people together in a way that you still have a system, you're still systematically connecting the entrepreneurs, the DIYers with their colleagues and the resources they need internally and externally, you might put, you know, formal functions in place, you might have something like a chief innovation officer, you might not, you might have more cells of innovation across your company. But what you do have is you have systems that work hand in hand with these uh, creative outlets. So I would say the biggest thing that this approach leads to and very clearly is engagement. And I think the beauty of this for large corporations is they have a lot of talent in their ranks that's underutilized. You can bring this out. You can retain the people who have this kind of entrepreneurial sense in them. You can retain them. And then they talk to their friends. And in a way, they become kind of a recruiting tool. And I think that's really crucial as we know that, you know, a lot of grads don't want to work with these big organizations. I love that principle. I think the whole kind of mindset around it differentiates some organizations and some teams. And therefore, it becomes a, you become a walk-in advert because you're allowed to perform. You're allowed to be innovative. You can demonstrate flair and creativity. That's exactly right. And, and what we know is that a lot of these folks talk to each other. Right. It's so easy to do that, you know, nationally and internationally. So it really does become a network Well, this organization's actually embracing, um, you know, being a DIYer or an entrepreneur. OK, let me let me check that out, you know, because I think there's a lot of uh, lip service to this kind of approach. But the companies that are actually doing it are, are attracting some really strong talent from the outside. So as a leader, in order to create disruption, but also maintain discipline, that's part of the system, isn't it? So how do I go about doing that? I think that's an important question because we have to understand that creativity and driving disruption 
and having discipline aren't at odds. In fact, they're really complementary, right? When we put systems in place, systems that have flexibility, systems that have guardrails and not sharp delineations, they're actually highly, highly complementary. So one of the most important things that people can do is if you want to start off really small, have an ideation session, have something like a hackathon, ask people to to add in. That's a very simple starting place, you know, but just make sure you don't have an idea box where nothing gets executed on. That's the, probably the, the biggest thing I would say, the biggest don't of uh, innovation. Um, that's a way to create a kind of a structure. You know, companies like Intuit, if you read and disrupt it yourself, uh, do a great job of, of having things like hackathons and having places for people to add in ideas, but then they also have places for entrepreneurs to connect to each other outside of there. They also have coaches. So these are people inside the organization who've been there. They've been the entrepreneurs. They understand the passion behind the idea. They understand the challenges and the barriers that might come up. So you have these internal support system. And then of course, you know, the if you have if you have incentives and other metrics that support entrepreneurship, you have this discipline, but you still get the creativity. So I was just talking to someone yesterday, in fact, um, at a manufacturing organization where they have um, incentives that change every four months because the things that they're doing are changing very quickly. And the, the incentives have to be changed a month in advance because if you're having incentives based on what you do over the course of a year, they may not be relevant over the course of a year. So rapidly changing metrics, I think, are a part of that. And that's where... You know, I think that this is where smaller teams can be really useful. Uh, or, again, that trust of asking a team, well, what do you think your metrics should be? You help define the new KPIs. You're embedded in this more than we are. How many of these things should we bring forward? How many of these ideas are going to come to fruition? How many of them are going to go to market and so on? So let the teams become involved in that. But that's, I think, how you start. And that co-design, even of the metrics, KPIs, et cetera, is, is a part of how you fostered the disruptive shifts without, you know, disruption in the system. It's actually a really, it's a really beautiful marriage of creativity plus some structure. Because if you don't have any structure, what we find is people, then, then things just go off the rails. It's it's not going to really be effective. And it is a myth, isn't it, that, you know, if you're creative and innovative, that it's mutually exclusive from execution. And of course it's not. And that's where that leadership discipline comes in, right? I think that's exactly right. So what I will say is, you know, after writing Jugad Innovation and bringing these ideas back, what We've seen over the course of the last, let's say, 10, 15 years is that ideation has really changed. There's always smart people in these organizations, um, but the ideas are getting broader. You know, these methodologies like lean and design thinking, very parallel to Jugada innovation, they're the, the, being con, you know, divergent before you're convergent. That's starting to become much, much more common. What is challenging is to bring the new ideas forward if you have to put them through a sieve of the existing system. So, you know, I think think about it this way. It's sort of like, are you are you building and executing for your end user or are you not doing that because of your existing business model? Right? So that's the trap that organizations get into and that's why you know, we write about, you know, organizational agility and fluidity in addition to the mindset of the innovators. If your organization has no space to shift in its structure, if you have no shift in metrics, you have no shift in the ability of teams to move around to some extent, you know, the ability to drive big innovation 
uh, starts to become more limited. It's fascinating. And I could spend all day talking about this with you. But our <laughs> guests are also going to want to extract some extra top tips and ideas from. I'd like to ask you what your top leadership or innovation hacks would be. Yeah, I love giving people uh, like quick starting points because sometimes it's just hard to get started. In terms of seeding an idea, one is just keeping the user at the center. Who's your end user and what is their real problem? Are you solving the right problem? And for an innovation crowd, that's old news. But what I'm here to say is it's still a massive problem. I see it every day in almost every organization. The user isn't at the center. We're still operating on a ton of assumptions. You know, another thing that folks can do is if there's pushback, you know, if people are trying to think about new ways to bring ideas forward and there's pushback, enlist those people, those very people into your process. That's something I learned pretty early on. So for example, we'd, we'd often get pushback from legal and we learned as we sort of ate our own cooking and did our research is legal would be irritated and frustrated because they would always be brought in on the back end, not the front end. And to be clear, you can't, it can't be anybody from legal, just anyone. It has to be the right person with the right mindset. But there are folks in legal out there who love helping you navigate the gray and they'll find you do it. If you bring them early, they can become an internal champion and advocate rather than sort of an adversary or someone who's pushing back on you on the back end. I think, you know, other things are if there are, you know, there, all, innovation is happening organically in every organization. Hold it up. Put it out there. Simple things like put a leader putting out an email saying, you know, I think now is a great time to do this to start cataloging the innovation that is happening in your organization right now, probably directly as a result of the COVID crisis. Sharing that, holding it up and asking people, what else is happening? What have you seen? Send me a note. Let me know about it. And then asking the question, well, how do we make sure this really continues. Uh, that's really powerful to people for people to see what's already happening in their organization and understanding that shift is occurring, that we can do this here. And then finally, I would say do more with less. You know, there's a chapter in my book, Disrupt It Yourself, that is a, a nod to Jugada Innovation. It's called Keep It Frugal. So this is really about how do we deliver high value at low cost? How do we do more with less? So I think that's a part of it is thinking about, well, not what don't I have, like I need a giant room with whiteboards and a lot of post-it notes. Or I could get started right now if I have a lunch and learn with a couple of people who have some big ideas and we just kick some things around. Doing more with less also means do less talking and, do my, and get, get into action. Right. I think I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. I mean, yeah. if, I, if there's one thing that people should do is just just get into action. Take a tiny little step, something that a third grader could understand. Your, sent, your, your phrase starts with a verb, you know, research something for 15 minutes or call this person to ask them uh, about how I might solve this problem. I mean, start very small and get into action. I love those the super hacks. Thank you for sharing those with us today, Simone. This part of the show also, we want to think about how you've used something that may not have worked well for you in the past or a time in your work or your life where things have not planned out in any way, shape or form. We call this hack to attack. So what would be your hack to attack? Um, I'll go back to this piece about compassion. So I've learned that if you try to push innovation on people, because it's the right thing to do, even if it really, you know, no matter, no matter what you feel or think, if someone's not ready for it, 
and you use a stick approach, it's not going to work in any meaningful and long-term way. And so I have become much, much more conscious and much more compassionate in my approach to innovation and teaching innovation in guiding leaders to have compassion. So for example, even if we think about the metrics, so for we might say, you know, it's important for everyone to bring ideas forward. Everybody has to bring five new ideas forward to this meeting, uh, which is a great way to start some meetings, by the way. That's another hack. But what happens is the people who are introverted or the people who aren't comfortable speaking in a group environment get left out. And so an example of that kind of compassion is maybe those people are identified and they're just, you talk to them separately and you make sure that they're not excluded because they don't fit a certain mold of what innovation looks like. So I would say that's one of my biggest learnings of the last several years is it's just as, you know, the push doesn't work. It's not effective for anyone. It doesn't lead to lasting impact. I think com a compassionate approach to innovation is the way forward. I couldn't agree with you more. And the last thing I wanted to unpick with you is we do a little bit of time travel at this part of the show where we take you back to bump into Simone at 21. <laughs> now, if you could speak to Simone when she was 21 and give us some words of wisdom and some advice, what would that be? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You know, as you get older, hopefully you come into your own. You start, you know, we talked about trust a lot today. And as you get older, hopefully you trust yourself more and more. Uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a balance in a way of what you learn. You know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And part of that wisdom is understanding what intuition is and why there is intuition. So I would say those feelings that you have where you know something is or isn't the right thing, follow those earlier on. And don't worry about what others say. I think that's a very common thing we hear you know, entrepreneurs say is there are lots of naysayers. That doesn't mean you don't take anyone else's uh, opinion into consideration, but I would say follow your heart. It's clear that over the last 15 years, having followed your heart, you've now driven not only something that helps others get into the principles of frugal innovation and Jugard, but actually you can see in everything that you do, Simone, and, and having watched some of your, your talks and having read uh, Disrupt It Yourself, you know, compassion is a, a key theme that runs through that. So thank you for sharing that. Now, as folks have been listening to you today, I'm pretty certain that they'll want to know a little bit more about you. Where would you like them ideally to go to find out a bit more about the work that you do and how they might want to connect with you? Thanks, Steve. I'm, I'm glad the compassion piece comes through. It's definitely something that's a, a high priority for, for me and for, for Blood Orange right now. If folks want to reach out or learn more about us, they can go to blood-orange.com. And if they want a tool that they can use, they can go on to contact and just drop in their email and write innovation action plan in the title. And we'll drop them out a little, a very simple plan that they can use to get started. We talked about getting into action, so we can then send them something like that. We've also got uh, an innovation kind of strengths finder assessment that folks can check in about as well. Great stuff and really practical help and advice through your website too. And it just goes without saying, Simone, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I've uh, studied your work for the last few years and have uh, had a ball uh, having the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the Leadership Hacker podcast today. Thanks, Steve. This is a great podcast and I've enjoyed listening and being a part of this. Thank you.